If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5. I want to get right into it. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. It starts in Matthew chapter 5. It goes all the way through Matthew chapter 7. It is our goal to study the whole Sermon on the Mount this summer. And that's why we're calling this series The Summer on the Mount. And this morning we're in the third week of that. And the goal of this week is to take what is often called the Beatitudes and to finish the final blessing of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Those Beatitudes or blessings or what we studied the first two weeks. And I'll remind you, for those of you who are here week one, these are things that progressively grow one from another until you get to the very end of the blessings where Jesus says you will be so close to following him, you'll be such a sincere disciple of Christ that no matter what the world throws at you, your blessing will not be taken. It will be a rejoicing moment even in persecution. But I want to read the entirety of the Beatitudes with the goal of ending in verse 10 this morning uh, just to remember where we came from. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And now we come this morning to these three blessings that we're going to study and, and really talk about. I, I do believe that each one of these could not only be an independent sermon, but an independent series. So give me grace as we work through these, because the, the Beatitudes do grow in intensity, starting with a blessed state when you have a poor spirit before the Lord, recalling that, that lesson, which was, Lord, I now realize in light of your glory, in light of your holiness, in light of your power and goodness, I am nothing compared to you. And if you have not come to that place yet, then the, the rest of the Beatitudes will probably not be evident in your life. But I remind you of that because we now come to more intense versions of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And should you listen to these as an entry point in discipleship without going through the entry point of a, a poor spirit, a hunger and thirst to know God and his righteousness, then you may feel burdened by the idea that you yourself, as it says in verse 8, would be pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You may be burdened by the blessing or the promise that you could be joy and content in your life as it says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Living in the day and age we live in, we know how challenging it is to make peace. But we're going to look at that blessing this morning. And then it says, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. He goes on to say in verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this morning we look at pure heart, we look at the blessing of peacemaking, and we look at rejoicing in persecution. All in one sermon, but they all go together. And before we look at the pure heart, I want to reemphasize who Jesus is speaking to. The, the Sermon on the Mount comes after a full day and, 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 and season of ministry where Jesus was reaching the multitudes. Remember, he was doing miracles. 
He was confounding the wise with teaching. Many people were coming to him to be healed. And it says in the very beginning of Matthew 5, to set up the context, it says, and the multitudes, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. This is a message for those who have a desire to follow Christ. This is not a message to teach you how to follow Christ, but what happens when you follow Christ. And there is a, a, a small but great distinction in those two statements. This week, which often happens, by the way, in the life of a preacher and also in the life of someone who's just devoted to God, God's Word and really trying to meditate and understand it, you'll often find it playing out in your real life. Whatever the Lord is teaching you through His Word, He's also teaching you through living parables of your life preparing you for a season when they will be activated or, or encouraging you for a season when you need it right now. And, and for me, as I try to understand the weight of the Beatitudes, but separating them from this, sometimes this tendency to think that I need to do those things to somehow meet with Jesus. I, I ran across a number of people this week who I would consider enthusiasts. Um, you guys are probably all enthusiasts in something, Enthusiasts are people who have, for whatever reason, been really excited about a particular object or hobby or, or, or matter of conversation, and they, they, they're people who just know it so well. So some of you are probably coffee enthusiasts. That's a popular one nowadays. And it's like, I know dark roast versus light roast. I know, uh, you know the blend that this comes from. And when you know it, you know how to find those distinctions. I... I uh, ran across a very interesting enthusiast, and I hope maybe some of you are here who have this enthusiasm for rocks. Did you know that rock collecting was a thing? Maybe some of you are like, finally, you're going to mention it. I've been looking for the rock collecting group at Calvary. Yeah, people go out, and they, they're walking in the foothills, and they're going on the trails, and they can spot a rock that is set apart, and it, you can go home and polish it and make it nice, and it will bring out colors. I went over to someone's house last night, and it was filled with rocks from, the, from, just from our little valley. Picked them up, knew what they were, took them home, polished them, and made them shine. For me, when I see the foothills, I just see regular rocks. I don't see <laughs> polish and potential. Uh, but that's what an enthusiast does. That same thing happened. My wife and I were out with some friends. A very nice car comes out in front of us. My wife says, look at that. What kind of car is that? Someone from the friend group goes, that is a 1957 Chevy Bel Air. It's a nice car. Yeah, you can clap for that too, I guess. Um, she says, how did you know that? And he goes, well, you got the, the bodywork in the back, the fin. You have the very specific wheels and the sound. You can see by the sound. And he's like, also, it says Bel Air on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Took a minute. Um, now, that is what's happening here. What's happening here is we are given almost a mirror for a disciple. This is what a disciple looks like. And you've probably, in your following of Jesus over the course of the time you've done that, you've noticed at times where you can say, there's one. They've got that thing about them that sets them apart as a disciple of Christ. And what's very important about making this distinction now is that most of the times when enthusiasts are looking for the marks, they're looking at the outside of the thing, the contour. They're looking for the sound. They're looking for what we can pick up with our senses. The rock looks a certain way. The coin has a certain shine to it, a certain year. The cards that you're collecting, they all have something that you can visibly see and make note of. And Jesus is saying it's going to be different for what makes you a distinctive disciple of him is not necessarily what you can see. And that's a very big lesson to learn in our lives. 
It's a lesson that he brought all the time in his day to say it's not what it looks like on the outside. That's why the Sermon on the Mount will continue to drive home this point in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Doesn't mean anything. What Jesus is saying is, blessed are the pure in heart. There's something that is in your heart, in your mind, that God is actually looking at that will be a mark of a disciple. And so we've got to talk about purity of heart this morning in a way that I have to leave you and exhort you with to hold the mirror up to say, not just there's a disciple and there's a disciple, I'll know one when I see one, but how does this look in my life? And that has been one of the great joys and burdens of studying this to prepare a message for it, is that the Sermon on the Mount will cause you to say, am I that? Am I a disciple that looks merciful to the world? And does that mercy live in my heart, or is it just an action that I project? Am I a disciple that has a hunger and a thirst for my heart to know righteousness? That's why we'll talk about the lust of the heart. That's why we're going to talk about the way God judges things very differently than us. A very important lesson that is emphasized throughout the Sermon on the Mount that will be a full sermon once we get to Matthew 7 when so many people in that day, meaning the day they meet the Lord face to face, to get an account of their life. Were they the thing that was set apart, distinguished for God? And some of them will say, I had the markings because I preached and I did miracles And I did mighty wonders in your name. All of these things that you can visibly look at and say, well, there must be a disciple. And Jesus will say, but I didn't know you. Or in other words, your heart was far from me. So a a, a healthy reminder for a congregation from a pastor, this doesn't tell you anything about me. My preaching, if I could say a a scripture without referencing the, the reading it, because it comes from memory, And this doesn't tell me anything about you. You are here. I'm so glad. And you look wonderful. But I have no idea the condition of your heart. And so with that in mind, when we talk about what it means to be pure in heart and to be peacemakers and to be people who rejoice in persecution for the purposes of this morning because of that theme, I thought it might be good to look at all of this not through the lens of theology and teaching, or trying to understand purity through the law, but through stories. Because the Bible actually gives us better pictures of what this looks like through stories of Jesus interacting with people than we find in reading the book of Leviticus. Sometimes we wish it was that simple, don't we? When we think about purity in the church, how often are we attaching it to behaviors? Very often. In fact, now, one of the, 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 the bad marks on the church for people who have left the church is something called the purity culture. Or it's like you could understand someone's purity by their behavior. And that is true as an outflow. There is wisdom in the way that we want boundaries to our relationships, and there's wisdom in the way that we want to have healthy response to what God has prescribed for marriage. There's wisdom in the way that we want to do well by the things that we can do outwardly to make our bodies pure, and to make our relationships pure. But what Jesus is getting at time and time again is he's looking at the heart, lest we think that purity is simply premarital sex and avoiding that. Or purity is simply having the right diet. Or purity is something that we can somehow wash from the outside because Jesus says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his life. 
what comes out of you. So for this reason, for the first story, we'll look at three. One for each topic of conversation. One for each beatitude this morning. We'll look at three stories. The first we'll find in the Gospel of John. A surprising story to look at for the lesson of a pure heart. Because we're going to find a lot of clues into this story from the gospel writer and even from the interaction that Jesus will have with this woman that purity was not something on display. John chapter 4 is often called the woman, of, woman at the well and there are so many sermons that could say, now turn to John chapter 4 and look, let's look at the woman at the well. This morning we're going to look at it through the lens of a pure heart. John chapter 4, this story starts in verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Listen to this. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In those two verses, we are packed full of the table being set to say, this is not a pure person. Twice, the, the gospel writer says, a Samaritan woman. Double emphasis in the Bible is never by mistake. It's always to say, pay attention to this detail. Samaritans were considered, pardon the expression, but for the time that they were in, they were considered half-breeds. They were considered half-Jew and half-defiled. They were not pure Jew. Women of the day, by God's grace and by the gospel infiltrating our world and bringing it up to the heart of God, women are now elevated to not have this view in culture where, Christian is, where Christendom has landed. Women have had elevated seat at the table. But in this day, a woman did not have an elevated seat. So this woman says to Jesus, I don't know if you're aware, but I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman and you're a Jew, so we shouldn't be talking. Now, if you read the law and if you understand Jewish culture, one of the biggest emphasis of their religion was purity. Was to find a way to cleanse yourself outwardly with boundaries, with relationships, to make sure that you are not violating the holiness of God, the purity of God's holiness. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus was always doing something to cross the line. How does this man that so many people think is the Messiah, eat with tax collectors and sinners, otherwise impure people. Jesus says to her in verse 10, then Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was to say to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Well, I'm so grateful for the metaphor that Jesus is using for living water. That is something that is so important when we think about a pure heart. Because what Jesus is going to get at, and he's about to tell her this. She's going to say, you don't have anything to get this drink from. She's thinking with the eyes that she can see. You don't have anything to pull the, you don't have a bucket to get the water out. And Jesus says, whoever drinks of this water, pointing to the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst again. What Jesus is saying is there is a thirst to your life that is physical, but it is pointing you to a deeper thirst that is spiritual. And we all have a spiritual thirst. And this does, in fact, have to do with what it means to be pure-hearted. 
In fact, Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish theologian and philosopher, wrote an entire book on this one beatitude. Again, grace for a 15-minute sermonette on it. It's called Purity of Heart, and the subtitle is, is to will one thing. That's what he defines as purity of heart. To say, purity of heart is a heart undivided. And now we start to understand more why this would point us to a visible image of God in your life. Because throughout the challenges of God calling people to himself, choosing to use them and bless them and keep them and protect them and then proclaim his glory through them, there is always this thing built into human nature as we are both flesh and spirit, which creates in us a divided mission. It creates in us hearts that long for God, but also try to be filled by other things. And this is why if I took the poll this morning and why I preface all of this, which this is not the starting point of the disciple, but it is the maturity of a disciple to have a pure heart. If I had you raise your hand and say, how many of you over the course of the last week, 48 hours, 24 hours, even this morning, feel like your heart has been pure? Very few of us. Because we add things to our heart all the time. And one of the ways our heart becomes pure before God as we become poor in spirit, and then as we become comforted in our mourning because we are rejecting sin, we no longer want it a part of our life, and then we become merciful, reflecting the image that we were made to reflect, and then we hunger for righteousness. When all of these things begin to happen, we now have what Kierkegaard has or says is to will one thing. Our heart is becoming aligned for the mission to know God and make him known. And that is what Jesus is going to get at now. He has a thirst that will not leave you dry. And this is why so many things fill up our heart is because the, the, the physical thirst you have is a great picture of how often we get our spiritual thirst wrong. Jesus says, look at this well. You drink of this well, you're going to thirst again. True enough. In fact, as I'm preaching right now, I wish I would drink in more water before I got up to preach because the more you talk, the more you need water, and my, I'm parched right now. Don't, don't, no one needs to give me water right now, please. But it's a reality. You just get thirsty in life. It's like I need water. And then you get thirsty for things that go beyond your physical quenching, but they're part of who you are. You thought for sure you were going to do this major in college, and it's like I'm going to be a nursing student, and that's what I want to do until I don't because now I want to try something else. And then you thought for sure you're called to a certain job and you couldn't believe you got it. You were so hungry and thirsty for a way to provide for your life. And you get the job and you're like, I hate this job. <laughs> Next, this is not what I want. And then deeper still, you get the relationship. You were built for relationship. You're made in the image of a triune God who is relationship. And you long for it. And you write songs and poetry to, to make it happen. And then you get it. And you're like, I had no idea that you ate so loudly, <laughs> and you're so annoyed. I, I'm thirsty for something else now. Jesus says, I have something for your soul that will make you never thirst again. And that is, in fact, what it means to have a pure heart, is that we are people who long for, or as the psalmist say, thirst for, pant for, like the deer pants for water. We are now that for God. And as your heart becomes pure for God, your heart becomes satisfied in God. And now there's a second element to this that will play out in our story. Because Jesus says, she says to Jesus, or Jesus says to her, whoever drinks of this will never thirst again. She says, sir, 
Give me the water that I might not thirst, nor come here to draw it. I accept the invitation. This thirst that I have that would somehow be quenched by what you have to offer, I would gladly receive. So now what does Jesus say? And this is the part, the second part of the pure heart. He says, go call your husband and come here. She's representing a heart that wills one thing, to be quenched of her thirst. And she's also representing someone that Jesus is going to cleanse. And that is why I love the metaphor of water. It is something that we both consume to be quenched, and it is something that we both stand under to be cleansed. And because you are all products probably of the richest country in the world, no doubt most of you woke up this morning and were cleansed by the gift of pure water flowing from the walls of your house. And that is our culture. That is a gift of our culture. And it is also, if you think about it, something strange that we do. You all probably took a shower after a night of pretty peaceful sleep. I doubt any of you were trudging around the streets or had, you know, irrigation boots on in the middle of the night or had to go through the dust bowl of our country. You went to bed. Everything was fine. You woke up and you said, well, I better clean up. (laughs) And that is something that we need to hold on to when we consider the pure heart that Christ calls us to. One theologian says that he calls us to a pure heart with gospel purity. What does that mean? The gospel is always doing something now that will be completed then. The gospel is always overlapping our two conditions. It gives us something in present tense that we have and we hold and we are that we really won't be until we get to the presence of God once and for all. So you think about salvation. David says, return unto me the joy of my salvation. It's a day in your life that you were made new by Christ. You went from far off dead in your sin, to alive in Christ because he died on the cross for your sin and you accepted the free gift. You're saved and yet we send our kids on mission trips and we pray for provisions and hope the van doesn't break down because vans still break down. And salvation on them that that day might mean that someone pulls over when they see the hood in the air and they say, do you need saving today? And they say, yes, because we are saved and we are being saved. We're still working out our salvation. And the day of salvation is nearer than it was yesterday. It's the same in the new creation. Jesus says, you're a new creation. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are present tense new. You've put your faith in Christ. You are new. You no longer have to listen to the whispers of the enemy, of your doubt, or your flesh, of all the stuff that you did because God cast it into the sea and he said, no fishing. You're new. And yet, you're still old. (laughs) You live in the old creation with the new creation. It's the gospel, it's the gospel overlap. You still had to wake up and, 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 and start the engine of your heart with a little bit of coffee because you're in the old creation still. Not that there won't be coffee in the new creation. I'm sure there will be. And that is a pure heart. We are cleansed by the washing of the word. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church cleansing her, adorning her, preparing her as a bride with the washing, present tense, continual, washing of the word. You come here this morning to worship God. He drew you in by by his kindness. You came here to experience the joy of his presence. You came here to be blessed by his word. And you came here by the power of the Holy Spirit to be cleansed. 
to be washed by his word. Because we live in a new creation in the fallen creation. And you leave this place and you go from the sanctity of his presence and the power of his spirit into a world that is fallen. And it happens all the time. So we preach this, I hope, to those who are listening to this message, maybe as a visitor, and you think, entry point into the church is a pure heart because I don't have it. Well, welcome to the club. All of us are being cleansed. And more and more and more, our heart is being aligned to the single focus of following God, and we're being cleansed of all of that other stuff. Jesus says, that's right, you have five husbands previous, and the person you're living with is not your husband now. This is who Jesus comes to. This is a picture of gospel pure heart. She is pursuing the Lord, and she is willing to listen to the Lord and say, what do I do about it? And we're going to get messy through this all the time. Lest we become Pharisees and legalistic people who think that pure, purity of heart is something that you're supposed to just have and you never mess up. I am in about 45 minutes, if all plans go well, I'm packing up my car, which is parked right over there, and I'm driving from Boise to New York with four kids and my wife. <laughs> I don't know how old all of them are. I know the youngest one is one. <laughs> and so it should be a wild ride. I was joking with somebody that I wish GPS had an option to allow you to put in where you're coming from, where you're going, get the estimated time, and then also put in how many kids you have and their ages to get the realistic time. <laughs> That's an app for someone to develop. <laughs> I don't know if I will ever see you guys again. I love you all. But as I'm preparing for this, I'm getting packed, and it's like, Blessed are those who drive in a pure car. It's so nice, right, when you have the clean, nice car. And so as my wife is packing up suitcases and little food boxes and coloring, I am like scrubbing the car. That's what I want to do. I want it to be a nice environment. I want it to be clean and pure. And what happens? About an hour into our first little drive around town, and the car is messy. I didn't even make it to Mountain Home. And the car is messy. And here's the reality. You all have messy cars, all of you, even if you just cleaned it. Give it a day. It's messy on the inside, and it'll be messy on the outside. You, you, the reason that you see all over town car washes popping up because no car is sold at the dealership to say, this is the one car you'll never have to clean again. <laughs> and this is the reality of following Christ. He calls us to a pure heart, and then he says, come and let me wash you. And as I wash you, you'll be more aligned with who I am. And as the story goes on, I can't help but notice I've never, something I've never noticed before. Because this woman is going to listen to the Lord. She's going to be taught. She's hungry. She's thirsty. She's, she's accepting the gift of the, the, the quenching gospel for her soul. And by the end, she asks him about worship. She asks him about, she's getting to the point where she's drawing with this single focus into who God is in her life. And listen to what Jesus says to her. The hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such, such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. Commentator, to worship in spirit means you are concerned with the spirituality of the heart and not the outward sacrifice of cleansing trappings. God is calling us to worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I read that with a, with a sense of eagerness in her, in her voice. 
I know he's coming, and when he does, then I'll know. And what does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. This is the first moment in the gospel where Jesus is allowing someone in on the veiled glory of who he really is. He's the coming one. A lot of people were asking, and a lot of people didn't see him. A lot of people missed him. A lot of people who did things on the outside to be seen by men actually didn't see that God had come to them. They missed him altogether. Their hearts were divided for things that didn't have to do with the worship of God. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And who do we see as the person who sees God in human flesh first? By our estimations, an impure Samaritan woman, she sees the Lord. He reveals himself to her. You get another version of this story. As Jesus is resurrected, he's standing in the garden. And Mary Magdalene, a woman from whom seven demons were cast out, is the first to see the resurrected Christ. May we be people who begin to look for God in ways that have more to do with worshiping him in our heart, in our devotion to him, in our single focus of who he is in our life, and less to do with the religious trappings that so often confuse people about how they're doing. It's the pure in heart. It's the single focus. It's the cleansing of God's word. The things that you used to hate about, the God, about God's will, you now love. The things you used to love about the world, you now hate. As you grow more and more and more one-minded. One thing I do, not that I've already attained, but I press forward to the upward call of Jesus Christ in my life. And as you do that, the dust of this world gets all over your heart and all over your soul. And you continually come in his presence where he cleanses you by the washing of his word. May you have a pure heart apart from the religious trappings this morning, and then you get to see God work. Which is actually a perfect way to think about this next beatitude, which is to say, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. They are now part of the family of God. This woman would actually go on as the story continues to not only see God, but to make God known. To be a peacemaker not simply in the terms of quarreling and, and war and peace, but that spiritual peacemaking that is the primary for all. The gospel peace exists first between you and God before anyone else. And as this woman at the well found peace with God, she then brought peace to her community. And Jesus went and spent time with them. The Prince of Peace dwelled among them. And that is now one of the markings that I hope will be known of our church, your family, your life in Christ, that you would be a peacemaker who has made peace with God. I love the biblical word for peace. It's shalom. It's also a greeting in many parts of the world to say shalom to one another. It's to say peace. And this shalom peace is different than we think. It's not the white flag of surrender. It's the peace of Joy, contentment, the environment of your life is a fragrance of peace because God is with you and he is blessing you and worry doesn't control you and fear doesn't cripple you and people don't scare you. Shalom. You receive that when you fear God and not men. And when you receive it, Jesus says, it is better now to give it. And this is the mission of the disciple. 
to be a peacemaker, not just a peace receiver. Again, poverty in spirit starts by saying, I need peace for my soul. You are mourning your sin and you're comforted, you're given peace. As you grow in your discipleship with the Lord, you are overflowing with the love that he's given you that you can make peace with others. Again, I said these would maybe be best seen through stories rather than, uh, than proof text. And so now I want to share a story not from the gospel, but a story from our church, actually. One of my favorite friendships that I've seen develop over the years in church, and I get to, I get to watch them develop, you know, friendship circles that start, guys and girls that start sitting next to each other. I start to notice that. I notice that. <laughs> And then I also notice when there's just these cool ministry pairings. And one of my favorite over the years was actually a man who's with us this morning. His name's Chris Smith and a woman named Shannon. And if Shannon was with us, she, she recently just went to be the Lord, she would be sitting right over there because Chris and Shannon always sat together and they always sat right there. The story is a story of absolute gospel peacemaking. When Chris was younger. He was involved in gangs. This is a story that he will share. If you let him share his testimony, he will because he preaches the gospel and evangelizes every Friday night, and he is gifted in that way. He was a gangster. He sold drugs. He had just a crazy history, a history that rightfully gave him some time in prison and in, in, in the system. While he's in prison, he tunes into the K9 Channel 9 uh, television program of this church, uh, where he hears the gospel, and the gospel changes his life. And he realizes this time when he gets out, he doesn't want to go back to the streets. He actually wants to find a sanctuary. So where was that TV program? Uh, Calvary, Boise. So he finds it somehow, and he, he gets to those doors right there. Living parable, easiest illustration of my teaching. And he opens them, and then he sees a sea of this, which, from my estimation and from Chris's at the time, some really normal, good-looking people. Not that you're not good-looking, because you are. <laughs> but you guys look to have your stuff together. If you're an outsider coming in from prison, you're just going to assume that every person here is, like, right on with the Lord and ready to worship and got their stuff together. So Chris does one of those unholy U-turns. <laughs> he just starts walking that way. And wouldn't you know that by God's sovereignty, as he's leaving, Shannon is coming. Uh, do we have a picture of Shannon and Chris? Because I would love for you guys to see what Shannon looks like. The, the picture on the, the left, you see Chris, who just recently did her funeral. The picture, picture on the left, if you can make it out, is Shannon. She looks like an elderly angel, really. She <laughs> wouldn't harm a fly, and yet in the prayer closet, she moved mountains. And when she met Chris, she walked right up to him, tattoos and all, He's on his way to leave, and she just comes up to him and says, do you have a Bible? And he goes, nope. And she goes, well, come with me. And she grabs him by the arm, and she takes him to get a Bible. And so Chris has a Bible now, and she says, do you have anybody to sit with? And he goes, nope. I don't know anyone. And she goes, okay, you're going to sit with me. She walks him right down here, and they sit together for seven years. Chris, from that Sunday, would grow in his discipleship of the Lord and started serving everywhere he could. And he started serving at our Words of Freedom outreach to jail and uh, people struggling with addictions. He now leads that. He would go into the jails and the prisons. He'd go to the streets. And as much as she could, she was with him every step of the way. That's why it's one of my favorite 
friendships that I've seen form because in our church, by the power of the Spirit, one of the fruits was that we had a ministry pairing of a gangster and a grandma. <laughs> and had Shannon not grabbed him by the shoulder, given him God's word, and said, I'm going to sit with you, I don't know where Chris would be, but I know where he is now. He's our street evangelist. He's leading the ministry. He got to share the gospel at her funeral where non-believing family members came and listened to Shannon's best friend share the message of hope. And I want to say two things to the story of that peacemaking moment. One, Shannon was an ambassador for the king. Shannon was actually representing God. See, in Shannon, we see God. With a pure heart, when you see Shannon, you see the heart of God in her to grab sinners by the shoulder, sit them down, give them his word, his promises, and then presence right next to them. I am with you, fear not. What an amazing ambassador of the gospel that she was. And I love that our God, who created the heavens and the universe, will come to us with his spirit indwelling in the vessel of a grandma. The power to create with spoken word shared through the vessels of our lives. So one, we see God. Ephesians says that he is our peace. Ephesians chapter two, verse 13. But now Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus, he himself is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. This is, the, this is the picture of the gospel. That no matter how far off, no matter what prison, no matter what addiction, no matter what you are in, there is a Savior that has come to the world that goes into the farthest parts to make peace and to bring them close. That's the gospel for everyone here. From the balcony to the second rise to the sanctuary here. No matter where you are spiritually, there is no distance that God will not reach into your life with the grace that abounds the sin. And that is also, Shannon being a picture of Christ, she's also a picture of you. You are now all given the Shannon ministry of this church. Because every week, every day, every moment of your life, there is a person that comes to the doorway of the salvation gates of God. And they peer in. And with a poor in spirit heart, they look and say, I can't do that. I don't belong in church. I don't belong with, in the company of pure-hearted people. Maybe I don't want that. And so God says his, sends his broken vessels of clay to grab neighbors and friends and family members by the arm and say, here's God's word. He loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. He laid down his life so that you could find yours. And he is with me, and now I'm with you. And then he sits with you. And you sit with them. And here's the real gospel, and this is how we come to the final part of all of this. The gospel is not Shannon finding her closest friend who doesn't know the Lord. The gospel is her finding the gangster. To the farthest out. Because Jesus says anybody can love their friends. But you'll know that you have the love of God when you can love your enemies. And how do you love your enemies? How do you know they're your enemies? Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Persecution now gives you a new measure of the love of God and the pure heart, the single focus of the gospel in your life. You now have a new boundary to rejoice in those who persecute you. 
Romans 12 says, do your best to live at peace with everyone. Make peace today. Make small peace. The quarrel in the car. The phone call to the person that you owe an apology to. Do your best to live at peace and trust God with the, the ultimate peace because it will not all be worked out in this life lest you think that every broken relationship means the gospel has failed. And then he says, repay evil for good. There is evil in this world. And although when I read the blessings of the Beatitudes, I think this does describe the, the, the heart for humanity in heaven. Because we're not yet in heaven, as the Beatitudes grow in our church and in your heart and in your life, so also will the friction of this world. This is not something that happens in the multitudes. Remember, the audience is the disciples. The multitudes are somewhere else. And for the disciples among us this morning, as you grow in maturity to Christ, you are growing in the ministry that Christ took part in. I came to give my life a ransom for many. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be turned over, betrayed, scourged, beaten, crucified, and rise again. If you follow Christ, the cross will find you. And if the cross has not found you, you're probably not following Christ. Maybe seasonally or for a day. And that's why this is so beautiful. We go right back to the poor in spirit and say, Lord, I am so sorry. I've played it safe. I have not represented you. I've denied your name. I did not want to do anything to upset the multitudes. And I've avoided all persecution. And I don't pick up my cross daily. Well, now you're poor in spirit again. Let you be comforted. And so now we end with a final story. Again, looking at these all through the lens of the story. John chapter 20 gives us a picture of the full intent of the ministry of Jesus because he came not to be an earthly king, but he came to usher in the kingdom of heaven for an altogether different citizenship. A reality totally revealed and not yet revealed until the resurrection. So in John chapter 20, we see the risen Christ. The king has not been defeated. The kingdom will start like a mustard seed, as he says, and it started first fruits of all creation on Easter Sunday. And he comes to his disciples, and he reveals himself through the fulfillment of the world, word come alive in their life, his presence with them, the joy they received from being with him. But there was one disciple missing. It was Thomas. And in John chapter 20, before Thomas gets to encounter the risen Lord, he encounters the disciples who had seen him. And what does Thomas say? He says, unless I see the wounds in his hand, the wounds in his side, I will not believe. In other words, unless I see the marks of the persecution that the world put on him, the light came into the world, but the darkness was afraid to be exposed because evil deeds happen in darkness, John chapter 3. So the darkness hates the light. And his wounds paid our transgressions. His persecution led to our salvation. And Thomas says, I need to see it. And Jesus appears and says, Thomas, here they are. Blessed are you for believing now. He worships him. Joy in seeing the marks of Christ. I hope there is joy in your heart this morning as you consider the marks of Christ for your own life, that a pure heart is not something that you have to obtain through purity rituals, but it is something that is given to you by the power of the Spirit in you because of the marks of, the, of Christ for you. 
And then what happens? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. There's one theologian that I find helpful here who says, as Thomas says to Christ, unless I see your wounds, I will not believe. So the unbelieving world says to the church, unless I see your wounds, I will not believe. Blessed are those who don't see the wounds of Christ, but see the wounds of the church. And that is how we may begin to start to rejoice in persecution. We live in a time, although I will not, I hope, do anything to oversimplify or undermine any real persecution that you have felt, whether it be by word or by action against your life because you are a follower of Christ. But you happen to live in a very strange time in human history where persecution of the church of God seems to be at an all-time low, at least in our culture. There is an underground church in China. We pray with the underground church in Iran and Turkey. We know that our brothers and sisters in Christ are there living out this blessing in real time. But we also know that as I preach, there is no one trying to siege the building at the moment. And as you leave here, no one's going to mark out who came so that they can track which one of you were following the way of Christ that they may silence you. You come here freely. Praise God for that. This is one of the only blessings of the Beatitudes that we're not trying to cultivate. We're joined the times of peace and prosperity. But we also realize that as those times shift, whether in our lifetime, in this decade, in this year, in this month, Jesus says there will be a reward that will be great. So part of this message is to prepare our hearts and our minds for the discipleship of Christ so that by his sovereignty and his grace, when the tides turn and darkness turns against the church here or in the context that God sends you, you will be ready to say there is something that God is doing to bring glory to his name and joy to my life. Great is the reward. There is something that God will do as the darkness tries to consume the church and the gates of hell once again try but fail in their attempts to prevail against God's church that will, by the marks of the church, bring about more people who believe like Thomas. Because there's a tendency and there's almost a good, healthy skepticism around church right now. We pass baskets or we ask for tithe and it's like, how do I really know that, that this tithe money is... Be, is going to be used for the glory of God. How do I know that you aren't just calling me in here and preaching to fill up your church and build your brand and, and, and send out more churches so that you can expand your little mission of the corporate church? A healthy skepticism, right? We, we all pray that that's not happening, but we pray by God's grace that it would be to his glory. Well, here's one remedy for that skepticism. When the church lays down the life of Christ in them for the unbelieving world. I don't think they get those accusations in Turkey and Iran and China right now. And that might be how we begin to say, blessed is the reward. The reward that will be ours in that gospel sense of the reward, it is partially now and it is fully then. Because can you imagine if the scars of your life, the scars that exist on your heart because of the darkness surrounding the light of the world that is in you now, Matthew chapter 5, 14, coming up. You're now the light of the world. The light was rejected by the darkness. In Christ, it will be rejected when the light is in you. But what will it be? What a blessing it will be when your life 
is an example of the gospel. And someone could come to say to you, I now see that there's no greater love than the love that was imparted to your heart by this God that laid down his life for you, that you now laid down your life for me. That your enemies would see the love of God in you. And your reward may be that when we get to the eternal kingdom, there will be the most unlikely pairings of people there because persecution could not stop the mission. In fact, persecution sometimes turns people hard-hearted toward soft-hearted. And maybe when we get to the eternal kingdom and we don't see him simply with the veiled glory, but unveiled glory, we know him as he knows us. Maybe one of the parts of that great reward is that you see people who once cursed the Lord, now praising the Lord. Maybe you'll see a neighbor or a son or a daughter or a child that because of the marks of your faith, now believe in our Lord. And they're worshiping with us. 10,000 years, can't even put a dent into eternity. So no matter where you are in your walk this morning, there's an entry point for a love and a hope that is found in Jesus Christ. Whether it's the entry point to say, Lord, I have had so many things in my life and I just want you to be my focus, cleanse me. Whether the entry point is to say, God, in the joy that you have given me, will you give me now the opportunity to bring peace and joy to others? And it may be that you are rejoicing in a way that is surprising to you because hardships in life don't always cause rejoicing. But may whatever comes into your life, take heart. The Lord has overcome. Rejoice in the suffering. 